0: Something about the name of Jesus. As our third through fifth graders are heading to study the Word of God, I just want to make as plain as possible that in the name of Jesus, it's possible to be simultaneously rejoicing and mourning. Uh, I recognize beginning any gathering with baby dedications is complicated because there are a lot of stories in this room or who are joining us at other locations that. Man, you're you're going, I would love to be on that stage dedicating a child right now, but our family is in a state of infertility, and we don't really know why, or we've been praying for that, and my prayers feel like they have gone unanswered. You need to know that even some of the families dedicating children today have sat right where you have sat, and if that is your story, opening the pages of Scripture is the ultimate reminder that God is near to those who are in that season right now. God hasn't left you what you're going through right now is not evidence that he somehow blessed someone else and not you you hold on and you trust in jesus and that doesn't mean always putting on a happy face or grinning and bearing it it looks like running to him instead of running anywhere else i just want you to know that you are seen you are heard and you are felt today i also recognize that today is a heavy day if anyone has been paying attention to the news this morning uh, it feels like every week I could get up here and address some type of shooting, but there was a shooting right down the road from us in Dadeville last night, uh, 16, Sweet 16 party, and I think uh, 20 people, as of now, I haven't read the latest report, uh, have lost their lives, many other wounded. I'm not, I'm not sure the accuracy of that stat. I'm just talking about like, what, I, what I just read. And uh, we have a location in Dadeville, Lake Martin, you need to know we're with you. I know you feel that in a heavy way right now. Um, But there's a, there's this weird dichotomy wherever the people of God come together in the already, but not yet kingdom. It's like, we're, we're so rejoicing and so excited to be in God's house, lifting up the name of Jesus, but we're also sorrowful and, and we're in pain and we're going, come Lord Jesus. When will it stop? And when will it end? And if you're here today and you're feeling the tension between like two different worlds emerging at church, that's called the kingdom of God breaking in against the kingdom of darkness. You feel that divide because it's real. And you live in a spiritual world. Don't care who told you you live in a material world. You live in a physical and a spiritual world where there are powers of darkness combating what the kingdom of God is spreading. But we know how the story ends. We talked about it on Easter Sunday. The empty tomb is your constant reminder that Jesus wins is the headline. And Jesus has won, is winning, and will win for all of eternity. That's what we looked at last week. We've been in a series in the book of Acts. If you're just joining us, it's the story of the early church and I do not have time to go into a full recap of where we've been. All those talks are on our podcasts or on our YouTube, but you gotta get last week because last week we looked at the sermon that Peter gave on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit goes out. It's really an explanation of Hey, what in the world is this story about this Jewish carpenter who taught these things and did these miracles? But then we thought he was dead, but now y'all are saying he's alive. And now, 50 days later, y'all are all in a room speaking different languages that you couldn't speak before. It's about 120 people. And so, Peter's sermon at Pentecost was him standing in that moment and going, Here is what is happening. We're going to continue at the very end of that sermon today, but before we turn there, I want to give you a title. The title for this talk, and I'm going to try to keep it short today. I say try because I make no promises. The title for this sermon is called Growing a Godly Family. Growing a Godly Family. Can you look to my next to you and say family, family. We're going to talk about family today. And really, we're going to talk about like nuclear, like your family at home. But even more than that, we're going to talk about growing a church family because of what happens in Acts chapter two. But I got to get that title in front of you right now, because when we talk about family in Auburn and Birmingham and other communities in Alabama in particular, the temptation is to believe that the goal is to grow a good family. And I hear it all the time in our lingo among parents and among people in the community. It's like, oh, they're good kids. No, we got a good marriage. Oh, it's it's a good life. God's been good. He's good. And good is is a good word, pun intended. Like it is, it's a really good word, but it's not the goal. The goal of a Christian is not to have a good family, it's to have a godly family. And the word godly doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean self-righteous. The word godly means pleasing to God. At the end of the day, more than I want a happy life free from pain, I want a life that when God looks at my life, he finds me faithful and it's a pleasing aroma in his sight. So the question you got to ask about your family and the question we have to ask about our church is not, is it good and is it pleasant? The question is, does God look at what you're building in your individual family and in whatever season of life you're in right now? I realize we've got a lot of different seasons. Does he look at it and is it pleasing in his sight? And on top of that, our collective family, thousands of people across the state of Alabama and even multiple other states. I want to ask the question Is God pleased by what's happening in the family of Auburn Community Church? Everybody look up here and don't miss this. The way we're going to clarify the answer to that question is we're going to look at the family norms of the early church 2,000 years ago and honestly ask ourselves the question, are we living like this? Are we really doing this stuff? And let's look at what was normal for them and then look at our individual families and look at our collective overarching corporate family. And I'm telling you, college students, I know the temptation is to tune me out because you're like, I'm coming from a family into a future family. I'm kind of a, an entity in and of myself, totally dependent on my former family, financially, most of you, and, and, and totally excited about my future family. Hello, can I get a date? But it's like, I'm in, this, I'm in this space right now. I just want you to know, this is one that you want to plant and keep. For your future, I promise you, God is gonna move through this if we pay attention to the word of God. Did you bring your Bible this morning? Here, upstairs in the mezzanine, in overflow, in the lobby, in Birmingham, in Lake Martin, and in Huntsville. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up a lot more, a lot more than on Easter. We must have had some creasters with us. Hold it up high, hold it up high, hold it up high. Keep it up, keep it up. Turn with me to Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two, we are gonna finish Acts two. It's a pretty long chapter. We got 28 chapters in the book of Acts. So after today, we're two chapters in in our year-long series through the book of Acts. Hopefully we'll be done by next Easter. That's not a joke. That's a real thing. We might break it up some in the middle, but we're going to journey straight through this thing. And we're going to get to the end of Peter's sermon. At the end of last week, we saw that the people listening to Peter preached were cut to the heart. That phrase means they were heavily convicted. They weren't just going, hey, can you be quiet? Because we got lunch plans and we're not here at this festival called Pentecost to hear about this Jesus thing. We're just here to kind of have a party and remember what God did through our people in the past. And all these people from all these nations are in Jerusalem, Peter gives this sermon and says they were cut to the heart. And Peter says, here's what you need to do. You need to repent and be baptized and you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and join up with what God is doing. Let's pick up in verse 40 and see what happens at the very end. Acts chapter two, verse 40. If you're there, say I'm there. It says with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Now I highlight that because in Acts 2, we don't have the entirety of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So if you're reading this and you're like, man, Peter preaches a lot shorter than you, Miles. No, 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 no. This is just the part that Luke decided to include. It says with many other words, He was pleading with them. What was the point of Peter's sermon? It was, hey, this generation and this culture all around you is moving in this direction. But if you listen to what I am saying right here and right now, you will save yourself from the corruption and lies that are taking you away from what God wants to do. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Then watch, verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Y'all, stop right there. This is day one of the church. How many were there before the 3,000? About 120 praying. They received the Holy Spirit. Crazy things are happening. One sermon is given. And at that altar call, if you will, the church just went from 120 to 3,000 in the blink of an eye. Can you imagine how overwhelming that, that moment was 2,000 years ago, like equally elated, but also, oh my goodness, we were 120. That was manageable. We could have a meeting in a room and now it's 3,000. Our, our church went from under hundred to 3,000 in about five years. And that felt like fast. Like, I don't know, what are we going to do? This grew so much faster than we were ready for. Can you imagine being the 12 apostles in that moment of, hey, your church, 120, hold up, wait, 3,000. And just as much as there's overflowing joy, like revival is breaking out for leadership, there's an equal amount of burden and challenge attached to that. It's almost like getting the news that you're having a child, parents in the room, you know what I'm talking about. It's like the initial moment, there's no response other than joy. Why? Because when God brings new life and there's growth in a family, the only rightful response is joy. It's like, we're so happy for you guys. Congratulations. Oh my goodness. Like you can't do anything but hug. But if you stop to think about it long enough, you're really like, Whoa, this is exciting. Also, oh my goodness, the amount of responsibility and burden that just got put on this family on every level just went through the roof. And we're excited about new life, but did you think about the financial costs of this? Did you think about the diapers? Did you think about the late nights? Did you think about the emotional trauma? Did you think about the physical issues of just like, it is, it is, oh man, we're so excited, but oh wow, this is going to be a lot. In fact, I read a commentator on Acts 2 today who said, the disciples essentially had 3,000 new births in one moment. That, that was 3,000 problems waiting to happen for them. Like they're excited and they're honored to be able to lead it, but at the same time they're going, okay, This is 3,000 fallen, broken people who all come from different backgrounds and have preconceived notions about God and about their family and struggles. And to lead this thing at this moment just went to a whole nother level of challenging. Now, here's how I want to frame the next set of verses. Look up here, guys. Do not miss this. There's no passage of scripture I have read over our church more in the last eight and a half years than Acts 2, 42 through 47 but I want to frame what we're about to read and what we've read a thousand times. I read it at our Welcome to Church lunch. I read it at anything when people ask, what do you want ACC to look like in real time? This is the description of the early church, but just keep in mind the verse before it. This is what the early church decided to do after 120 became 3,000. And and one last word about that shift. I think in our day, there's a temptation and a tendency to kind of be negative and a naysayer about any church that's particularly large. And some of that criticism is totally fair. But I just want us to keep in mind as a large church in and of ourself, a larger church is not any less pleasing to God. He literally took it from 120 to 3000 in the blink of an eye. God likes his kingdom growing to new people in real time. At the same time, smaller churches and medium-sized churches have their place and their gifts in the kingdom of God. We all connect to see God do a new thing. But I just wanted to say publicly in front of our church, if the criticism of ACC is it's just so big and it's so massive, it's a challenge. It's one we're learning how to deal with well. But at the same time, I would rather have this challenge than any other challenge because God has poured out his spirit in a new way. So we got to look at what were the norms of their family and are these the norms of our church family and of our individual families? Here we go, Acts 2, 42. Many of you know it by heart. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. That's it. That's what we want to see. That's what growing a godly family is all about all these different activities happening, but the common thread being that they were together. Anytime I talk about this passage of scripture, I like to remind us that the price of community is the sacrifice of commitment. So many people want the community and the, the, the like fellowship and love that's present in this passage, but they don't want the commitment. You realize that all the romantic things and the signs and wonders and the cool moments around meals, they're all happening in the context of living together. So if you're not willing to commit to a local church and do life together over time, when it's good and when it's messy, then you're not gonna taste the glories of what it means to be involved in covenant community with other believers. But this happens on the backside of commitment. And that is why our leaders and our church family is working toward a more extensive process of committing to making ACC your local church. But make no mistake about it, this is not gonna be a class or a test that you take. It's going to be an organic invitation to share your story and to make sure you're all in with what God is doing here. Because the last thing we want at Auburn Community Church, thousands of people who love the worship and love the preaching. That is not what this is. A church is not a service you go to on Sundays. It is, it's this stuff. And so I want to show you, wait a minute, what were they, what all were they doing? Can you organize that for me in a certain way? They were doing consistently together all throughout the week, four different things. Number one was they were teaching God's word. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. The word of God was being taught. Why? Deuteronomy chapter six, one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament talks about impressing the word of God on your children, that you talk about it while you're on your way and while you're on your way home all the time, as much as you can write it on the doorframes of your homes. As a church family and as an individual community, the number one endeavor that we have as far as tactical is the speaking of the things of Jesus, the preaching of the gospel and the right teaching of the word of God. Why? Because we live in a world of lies. And it is not enough to make sure you get the sermon in on Sunday and maybe get a Bible story in before bed. This is an all the time meditation. I need to let the word of God soak in my mind and heart so much so that I become it. And in a lot of ways, I love this about our church. One of the things I've heard about our church is that if you hang out with people who are from our particular community. Like you go on a trip with them. There's just moments where everybody's got their Bible out and are trying to go deeper into the scriptures. I love that picture. I love that one of the number one signs of what we're trying to do is people holding up their Bibles. What began as a joke to get single people a date became a symbol of what we want to model in our culture. It's like, what is this all about? We want to teach God's word because any other option for our lives will ultimately end in slavery because it's rooted in the ways of this world and lies. We wanna be renewed. We wanna be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that happens by teaching God's word. Number two, they had fellowship with other believers. And that word fellowship in this passage is the Greek word koinonia. It's a word that Paul uses a lot. It means like friendship on a whole nother level. So think of your best friends in the world. Most of those friendships were forged by common ground, whether that's about sports or about interests or about, we just enjoy talking about similar things, travel, whatever. Okay. Paul and the New Testament writers use the word koinonia about believers having friendships because we have a commonality that's not built by, oh, I'm interested in that. So are you. We have a commonality being filled by the Holy Spirit of God. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, guess what? That unity transcends all disunity about politics, about racism, about cultural background, about socioeconomic status. We are united by the blood of Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit. So what happens? We're generous. They're giving to anyone who had need. They don't consider their stuff, their stuff. It all belongs. Why? Because church is not a service you attend. It's a family you belong to. Jesus didn't come to grow a following. He came to grow a family. With sons and daughters of their heavenly father, filled by the Holy Spirit, connected, united to Christ. And that's why they were consistently gathering together. You know how often they gathered together? They didn't gather once a week, three times a day for prayer in the temple. And I get that this is a different day and age. They're not, they're not traveling as much. Jobs look different. The rhythm of life looked different. But this group could not help but be together. And it literally says they had everything in common. That doesn't mean that they were all the same type of people. It just means the one thing they had in common, the filling of the Holy Spirit, transcended everything that was different about them. Number three, they had meals with intentionality. Meals with intentionality. If you notice in that passage, they're like eating a lot. The breaking of bread, not not just like privately and individual meals, but corporately taking the Lord's Supper. There's something about sharing at God's table and being intentional with meals over time that grew the early church. In fact, everybody look up here, do not miss this. If you look at what grew the early church the most two thousand years ago, it was not crowds drawn to a speaker or particular miracles. It was people slowly but surely across the Greco-Roman empire won over by the hospitality of a dinner table. I'm saying, do your homework. You You need to see this. Our plan as a church for discipleship is the table. We believe something significant happens at the table. We talk about this with families who are raising kids. You got more of an opportunity to raise your kids at the dinner table than TikTok or Instagram or any cell phone app does. And I actually mean that. That is the number one space. And as a parent who's really fearful about raising kids in our day and age, trust me, I get scared to death of all the options that are out there, but I've got to realize the responsibility I have as a parent to go, if you own the table, you have more of an opportunity to form your child than technology or anything they hear about school ever will. And we believe this about our community groups, y'all. Hey, as, as much as I love Community groups getting together and studying the word of God. It's beautiful. Doing right now media studies and listening to talks and and, and worshiping together and like putting music on and worshiping out loud. All that stuff is awesome. But I want to make sure that you know it is just as spiritual to feast together and to enjoy the community that God has put around you. And our table always has room for one more. We're teaching God's word, fellowship with believers, meals intentionality, and then last one, devotion to prayer. They were praying three times a day and these times of prayer were both planned and spontaneous. You guys know the early church recited set prayers. One of the main ones was the Lord's prayer, but they also prayed spontaneously as needs went out throughout the day. I've got whole sermons about praying without ceasing but I just want you to know the whole thing was built on a commitment to prayer. And we've talked ad nauseum about being a church that is centered on prayer. It's our word for the year. Now, all four of those things on the screen. Here's what you need to know. To grow a godly family, both in your individual family and in a local church, you have to be uncompromising with all four of these things. That's what it takes. So if you're like a list person and you're like, I just need to know, like, give me the points. Give me what I'm supposed to do. Our homes and our communities have to be locked and loaded with these four things as much as they possibly can. And I hope that's helpful. And I hope that gives you a roadmap to walk on. But everybody look up here and do not miss what I'm about to say. The problem with a family and the problem with a church is that there are people in it. Which means it's not a machine where you can input certain practices and automatically the output will be consistent. Some of the older parents in the room know this. You had multiple kids in your house. You you raised them to the best of your knowledge the exact same way. And some of them came out totally different than others. And you're going, I don't get this. Like literally every single thing about where we took them to church, what we taught them and how we raised them up, it was exactly the same. And then they couldn't be more different. What in the world happened? It's because a family and a church is a living organism. It means over time, there's give and take and there's things that happen that you don't see coming. And so I would love to stand up here today and go, hey guys, as long as we're doing those four things, we'll be fine. And as long as you're doing those four things in your house, you'll be fine. But here's the truth and the reality. Even if you knock it out of the park at all four of those, you won't be fine unless you get what I'm about to say. And I've been preaching Acts 2, 42 through 47 for eight and a half years, and I have never given any second thought to this little phrase that is buried right at the beginning of the description of all they were doing. Since you're already looking for it, I'll just tell you what it is, guys. You don't have to figure it out ahead of me. You're like, I'm gonna find it before he says, it. okay, we're, we're, in, we're all in this together, guys. High School Musical, here we go. Acts 2, 43, look at this phrase. Everyone was filled with awe. Everyone was filled with awe. Another translation, which I actually like better in this particular case says, awe came upon every soul. You're like, yeah, they're experiencing something amazing. Of course they were in awe. No, you don't understand. Those four things that are so great to do as an individual family and so great to do as a church are not the end goal of the Christian life. In fact, can we put those four things up on the screen? If all we ever do are these four things and we do them well, but we miss out on the awe and wonder of genuine, sincere worship of who God is, we'll totally miss the point. They were filled with awe. They were filled with wonder. There was a sense of amazement going around that was like, can you believe we get to be a part of this? And can you believe God is doing this? It's so important because if, if you have teaching God's word without awe and wonder, all you have is puffed up intellectualism. And all you have is people who want to bang their Bibles into the ground and go, well, know this and memorize this and memorize this. If you're not in awe of God, you've totally missed the point. If all you have is like fellowship with other believers, but you don't have awe and wonder before God, you have a country club and a closed off social circle, not the family of God. If you have meals with intentionality, but you don't have awe and wonder with God, all you have is self-indulgence. And if you get to the end and you have prayer, all the prayer in the world, without awe and wonder for God, you have self-righteousness and Phariseeism. The magic ingredient of the early church was standing in awe of God. And I wanna to argue today that growing a godly family is all about rooting your family in a state of joining the song of heaven that says, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Our greatest issue as believers, look up here, do not miss what I'm saying. The greatest fight for your soul is a fight for heart level worship. This Jesus thing is not a competition for your daily disciplines and practices. It's not a, we just need you to stop doing that stuff and start doing that stuff. It's a war for the affection of your heart. And when you build into your life a desire for God that burns away your desire for sin, you have now become the type of believer that can participate in the family of God where the Holy Spirit is spreading like a wildfire. And I realize we got a lot of people attending church today who might be like this whole like doing those four things was weird enough. But now you're talking about like standing in awe of God. This is just like a a, a religious thing. This is just a Jesus thing. No, this is a human thing. Think of every environment that you've ever been in where it feels like there's life happening. There is also worship happening when you saw that. that. Think of our football games in the fall and you think of like when people rally around a cause, it doesn't have to be a religious thing for you to see that human beings were created to worship. In fact, I saw this in such a real way this week. I stepped further out of my comfort zone than I have since we moved to Auburn this week. Courtney and I attended a Kenny Chesney concert. Okay? And if you know me, you know, that's way out there in the water. Like, like the song Oceans was on as we walked in. It was in Birmingham, by the way. And I looked out there and I know like two or three Kenny Chesney songs in my life. My, my, my wife loves Kenny Chesney, so it was so much fun. Went with friends, it was great. But I'll tell you what, what, what blew me away is watching this arena full of thousands of people. And every time a note. I mean, just the slightest note would start. There was something from the gut of 6,000 people that was like, I know every word. And I'm watching this and going, I wonder how many of these people realize that that is what worship is. That, that they've identified something about what he sings and how he sings and his message about life that's like deep in the depths of who they are, that they can't help but express in some kind of outward way. And I'm going, most of these people probably have no idea that what they are doing is letting out their inner need to be attached to something that's greater than themselves. But here's the problem with with giving your worship and adoration to anything other than God. I'm all for sports, I'm all for concerts, I'm all for whatever you're into, but here's the problem. Those things are all small things compared to the ultimate thing and the giver who gave us those individual gifts to point back to himself. And here's what you need to realize. If you never join in with the worship of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you will never truly discover your identity in this life. You will always be wondering, who am I? You'll always be searching. You'll always be looking for the next hit or the next thing or the next like or the next adora- adoration. Why? Because we get intrinsic value from attaching our souls and our stories to something greater than themselves. Could it be that you will, defi- you will finally discover who you really are when you let out of your soul the song that's being sung in heaven? Holy Holy, holy, what does the word holy mean? It means without error and without equal. It means God, there's no one like you. And if you've gone your whole life without letting those words out of your mouth verbally, your soul is sick and suffocating because you are depriving yourself of the reason why you have breath. You have breath in your lungs for your heavenly father to love you and for you to sing a song. And God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The satisfaction your soul is longing for comes from glorifying Jesus. So if you're here today and you're like, I wanna grow a godly family, how do we make sure we don't miss it? How do we make sure we don't miss it? Here it is, number one ingredient, it's my only point today, Christ exalting worship. That's it, Christ exalting worship. Your greatest weapon, according to the scriptures, against the anxiety that cripples you is Christ-exalting worship. Jesus goes into that in the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking for solutions all over the world, and I get it's a complicated issue, but there it is. We are so anxious because we are so self-centered. You find who you really are when you get your soul to a state of self-forgetfulness that puts Jesus in his rightful place. But guess what? That's not just for your individual battles with your own mind, That is true for your battles in your marriage or with the people you love the most. Do you know you are the quickest to forgive when you've been in the presence of Jesus and felt how forgiven you are. You are the quickest to be patient with the people around you when you've been around the God who's slow to anger and he's blown you away again with how amazing he is. The fight for your faith is the fight to stay in awe of God. And the fight for our church right now is the fight to stay in awe of God. Holy Spirit, please help me to stay in line with what you want to say right now because I do not want anything I'm about to say to to come from the flesh. I only want it to come from your spirit. Guys, we're in a moment together as a church right now. And I am like righteously indignant against what the darkness is trying to do. And this thing, I mean, it's way bigger than we ever thought possible, but new levels mean new, new devils. And I've sensed it. And one thing I have sensed is something that I believe happened to the church back in Acts chapter two. If you read any commentary about what we're reading today, it says, this is what the church has been trying to recapture for 2000 years, but can't. And it talks about how we've all divided and we've become all these different denominations. And 2000 years later, we are a far cry from what was written in Acts chapter two. Do you want to know what happens? Believers stop standing in awe of God and start dividing with one another over preference. And it becomes about things that it's not really about. And so I just want you to know, I've I've taken more conversations with like frustrating, hard, offended people over the last couple of months. And I love the thousands of people that call this church home, but we cannot let our individual personal attitudes distract us from what's the point of all this? Jesus wins and let's stand in awe of Jesus. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're going to keep doing here. And if if you have another agenda at this church, other than the exaltation of Christ, you seriously need to consider whether or not this is the right church for you. And I say that as a leader and a shepherd that is called to protect and embrace and comfort our people, but to also drive away those who would drive a wedge. I'm, I'm, I'm so dead serious and do not want to miss the softness of Christ, but also the firmness with which he protects his people. Do not come in here with another agenda other than exalting Jesus. That's what it's all about. So the whole sermon, here it is. Ban you can come up here. I'm done. It was quick, semi. We must, we must make a regular pursuit of standing in awe of God. You have to do this personally. We have to do this corporately. We have to stay in a state of standing in awe of God. Why? Because Humility is not something that we can conjure up. The key to health, and y'all stay focused, please. And if you're tempted to get up, please make sure that's for an emergency. It has never been more distracting for you to get up mid-service than it is in this room. While I'm being firm and difficult, I'll just go ahead and make that point too. Um, The key ingredient for health in every family is humility. If you don't have humility, you're not gonna get healthy. But humility is not a character word that you can go, oh, I'm working on my humility today, I'm serving others. That, That doesn't work. Humility is unnatural to the human condition because of sin. Humility is the byproduct of being in the presence of Jesus. And if you haven't been near Jesus lately, you're probably either arrogant or insecure. Both are two sides of the same coin called pride. So what's our endeavor? Staying humbly at the throne of Christ and fighting against the enemies of our worship. What are the greatest enemies of our worship? Well, one of them is familiarity. Some of us have just gotten too familiar with God that you literally have to fight against this by every day focusing your soul on the stunning glory of God and his transforming grace. If you're not going to do this, you will not be the husband, you will not be the wife, you will not be the friend you are called to be. The two are related. Your personal worship and our corporate worship is related to our relational health with one another. And I wanna grow a godly family. But at the end of the day, What's going to decide that is going to be less about did I make sure we had a Bible study every day and more about in in my efforts to do all of those things, did I cultivate a heart that fought against the familiarity with the things of God with an awe and a wonder. Jesus, wow, I see you. You're amazing, but you got to fight for that. The last enemy, and then I, could, I could go into like so many of these. If this sermon resonated with you at all, there's a book called All by Paul David Tripp. It's all about how every struggle you have in this life is related to what you stand in awe of. It's all about your affections, all about worship. But the other enemy that I feel in my spirit most often is forgetfulness. We have a problem called spiritual amnesia. We forget the power of the cross. Some of y'all, it's a week away from Easter. You've already forgotten the power of the empty tomb. Why? sin blinds and numbs. So we gotta come back. And we're gonna do that right now by taking communion. If you got your elements on the way in, you wanna get those out. If you didn't get it, you can raise your hand right where you're at. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you just wanna sit this moment out and reflect on whether or not you wanna step into a relationship with God. Once again, if you didn't get one, just raise your hand right where you're at. They'll bring one to you. And and we also have communion stations in the four corners of this room where you're welcome to get up and come kneel and pray and take, some bread and dip it in the juice that's fine too but why do we do communion every week we do something to physically remind our senses to stand in awe of the cross that we've been forgiven that grace is here because of the blood of jesus and if you're here and you don't know jesus this is your invitation in this moment to step into more of god this is your invitation to confess your sins husbands this is your invitation to pray over your wives like I challenge you to every week. Let, let's like right now practice the very sermon we just heard and then we'll finish by standing in all of God and joining in the song that's happening in heaven right now. Y'all take communion and we'll sing in just one second.